This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. I'd like to start tonight's presentation because I've been seeing so many people lately with broken engagements. Since I gave an interview on uh, Headlines Radio, which reached over an audience of 50,000 people on the whole subject of broken engagements, many people have been coming to me with that. So I have to ask the following questions, which is leading to this problem. Do we have toxic expectations when we date? Do you say the following? I've known the type of person I plan to marry since I was a young child, and I can't change that picture. Or, do you feel like you say, I will not settle for someone who doesn't live up to my, my dream fantasies? Or do you say, I hear bells or, or see stars, I need, I need to see stars or hear bells to know that I have met the right person. Which is ridiculous which is a Western misconception. The kind of thing that gets so many people into problems. I had a 39-year-old man now who can't get it right because he keeps going out with girls and after two or three dates, he dumps them because he has to see bells and whistles. So I told him that's not the way Jews date. We date with our heads. It's all about having common values, common hashkafa, not... And here's the problem with this fellow, because a lot of people who are single have really a lot more time on their hands, they start watching a lot of movies. And what happens as a result? They get fantasies in their heads because of the starlets and the stars, and now the people that they have to go to have to match up to that paradigm in their archive in their head of what the person needs to look like. And as a result, we have failure upon failure, and so many older singles coming to see me, asking for my help. So in this case, what I did to him, I said to him, here are two girls, they're both nice. I know them both. Girls in their mid-30s. And you're going to go out. You're going to have to give me a abreast of every date. Why? You may say no. You have to explain it to me. You have to give me a darn good reason why you don't want to go out again. So many people get into their delusions. And as a result, years go by. And I read him a story. I read him a story of the Rab Chaim Kanievsky's father, the stipler, who said that when it says that a certain girl is supposed to marry a certain boy, a boss, Cole comes from Shemaim and says, this girl will marry that boy. It's not written in stone. You can mess it up by misusing your free choice. And the stipler says, how many people have come to me and said to me, Rebbe, I'm already 30, 35, where's my soulmate? I look at them and I say to them, I'm so sorry, you missed the boat. She's already married. He's already married. Why? Because you thought you were something special. You were a mashahu, looking for another mashahu. You can wait all you want. Like we said last week, my Rebbe Rigdon Miller once saw a man on the street who went to his shul and said to him, how many girls have you dated? He was an older bacher. Oh, about a hundred. So Rigdon Miller said to him, I would have been married to 70 of them by now. The man went on to marry, Rigdon Miller says, a woman who was moon-faced. Not so pretty, actually ugly, and unfortunately didn't even have kids. In the end, he settled for something far worse than he could have gotten had he been realistic and he worked with the top ten list and he had been looking and searching for midos and not put such a paradigm and such a, 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 a you know an insistence on looks, 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 which is the biggest misconception of TV and Western culture. Next. So let's go on. We all have pictures in our minds of a spouse who we think will make us happy. Our ideas are formed at such an early age that we often don't even realize that we have let them alone, take the time to analyze them. How do we know our own expectations? 
How do we differentiate between an important quality of character that will make me happy versus an impossible to find fantasy ideal that I may see on television or get from the newspapers or the media? Now, first, remember, what are you up against? The entertainment industry makes it impossible for us to have a healthy, stable relationship. We're continuously bombarded by media images of what an ideal husband or wife should look like and be like. So as a result, we are now compromised in our ability to use the Torah to act objectively. Even in the religious world, where we're somewhat shielded from bad influences, We all know that we're influenced by the, by the Western media. Just an innocent trip to the shopping mall can influence us to want certain things. A photo of a laughing couple in a store window can make us yearn for that kind of joy, even though it's not a real couple, it's a Photoshop. And these people in the picture are being paid to try to sell you something. But then when we meet a perfectly suitable boy or girl that's suggested to us, if we don't laugh uproariously like the image in the photo, we have doubts about the relationship and we cast the person aside. And that's exactly what this fellow told me tonight. I'm not trying that hard. After a date or two, I'm out of there. I don't give it a chance. Why? Because we've been corrupted by movies in the media. Even when we get beyond the influences of the secular media, our Jewish religious communities have certain ideals of our own. We are raised with the idea that the husband must be a top learner or a top earner. Yet obviously, not everyone will be zochet to have the Talmud Chacham of the class. And not everyone would be happy if they got it, because that may not be necessarily what's good for you. Likewise, not every woman will be a fabulous balabusta that can cook up the best gourmet meals. There must be some room for compromise, some room for variation in building the ideal Jewish home. It's so valuable for us to realize that our head is so brimming with demoralizing expectations and shoulds, I should do this, I should do that, that we may never have given serious thought to what's really important to our own happiness. Here's a case, Elazar. Elazar whispered to his friends, I'm accepting offers, as if he's going to decide from a harem of girls which one he's going to marry. He whispered loudly into the ear of one of the city's wealthiest individuals at a local Purim party. Mr. Werner was stunned, contemplating whether or not he had heard the boy correctly. Elazar was a top learner with a great reputation. How could he be so arrogant as to think he's accepting offers, like he's selling himself to the highest bidder? Mr. Werner studied the boys as he walked down a table of drinks. This boy's self-confident swagger, Mr. Werner concluded, he's thinking so much of himself. Mr. Werner stood there disgusted, wanting to shout to every girl on the planet to stay clear of such a pompous, arrogant boy. What could create someone so full of himself that he wouldn't even be embarrassed to say such a thing. Elazar made his way around the room and Mr. Warren had tried to calm himself. Maybe he had misunderstood him. It was so awful the way Elazar had said it, but maybe Elazar was only stating that he was now ready to get married. The boy went to stand close to a woman who could only be his mother and Mr. Werner decided to investigate. Hopefully he would not ha- had, hopefully had the wrong impression of the boy. Mr. Werner introduced himself and then commented, So I hear your son is looking for a shidduch. Why yes, she said, pleased that someone of Mr. Werner's interest was 
his, his, his station in life was taking interest. Do you know someone for him? Well, it can be quite difficult to find the right girl. A boy must be able to be calm and, and, and also be humble. But listen to what the mother said. He's not going to lower himself, my son. He has to get the best. Mr. Werner's heart sunk as he realized where this arrogant boy had gotten his devastating midos. Elazar may be the best boy in the yeshiva by certain standards, but guess what? He'll make a dreadful husband. His number one priority, as it's been his whole life, was only to please himself. To top it off, the lucky high bidder will also get a mother-in-law who thinks so highly of her boy that no one will measure up. Any girl he marries will likely spend her life trying to improve her worth, rather than simply being loved for who she is. Elazar may be a tempting catch for the parents, and they'll gain the bragging rights to winning this boy. But guess what? Such parents, if they gave their daughter to such a boy, will be condemning their daughter to a life of misery. Because all it was is about who wants to pay for the highest, the highest price to get this boy. David, case number two. David carefully wrapped the silver kiddush cup in tissue paper and placed it back in the box. He put it by the other gifts that his mother would return. The sound of the telephone jolted him out of his stupor. And he stood listening for the machine to pick it up. It was another wedding guest expressing sympathy for the broken engagement. David choked up when the woman mentioned what a mensch David was and how he'd be again engaged in no time. But he was sure there would be no next time. David's heart was broken beyond repair. Bracha, he felt, was his bashert. He was certain of that. She was a girl so refined and gentle that even Bracha's principal told David's mother, that she, Bracha, was the role model for many students in the, in the school. But most importantly, she was the person with whom David wanted to spend the rest of his life. He knew she had commitment issues. They had been dating off and on for a while. But this last time, Bracha had told the Shachan that David was truly everything she ever wanted in a husband. So kind and so considerate, full of depth and emotion. It had just taken her a long time to see it. So they were engaged. And Bracha seemed to be the happiest person in the world. Until two weeks before the wedding. A simple phone call from Bracha, and David's world came crashing, falling apart. For the rest of his life, David will be left to wonder, what happened? But I know the truth. After a bit of confrontation, I weaseled it out of Bracha. Bracha told me that she didn't feel stars when she was with David. And she couldn't go through with the wedding. Because she had to feel stars. No matter how hard we try to explain to her, you don't make a momentous decision based on such a feeling of feeling stars and fireworks. Bracha didn't care. She was holding out for stars, even if I'm at losing a great boy who probably was her bershert. She broke it off. Bracha is looking for some fantasy image of what she thinks will make her happy. We're fairly certain that Bracha never went to the movies. Hollywood values have seeped into the firmest circles in our society. Maybe something a camp friend said, maybe a book that she read, maybe her, something her sister told her that she had felt when she met her Bashert exaggerated the encounter to make it more exciting. Of course, we all try desperately to keep walls around us, but guess what? Hollywood cracks in. Hollywood makes it through the cracks and invades us and infects us. When we read these books and it tells us about happily ever after, we should also throw in a comment that says, these silly secular books don't really know what a truly Jewish home is like. These silly books make it sound like life is all about candy and sweetness. 
That's probably why so many marriages in the outside world are miserable, or half of them end in divorce. Make sure you understand that a marriage takes effort, that a marriage takes work, and that's how we fulfill our mission in life for Hashem. By respecting each other, and by working together, not dancing off into the sunset like some magical Disneyland book. Obviously, Bracha had stuck in her head that she should have swooning emotions to confirm she was marrying the man, just like Hollywood would have us believe. Here was a textbook case of exaggerated expectations, and she had zero interest in hearing any counter-arguments from sound, rational people. She was fixated, I'm going to get a guy that get, that, where I feel stars. Okay. We've talked with couples who base their entire marriage commitment on infatuation. And a few years down the road, there's a level of contempt and hate for each other that is shocking. Because their relationship was not based on, on depth, on values, on character. Why? Why did they have such disdain and hate for each other? Couples who got connected only purely through physical feelings. Because eventually the fantasy picture cracks and they are left with a less than perfect reality, and the letdown is devastating. Far better to feel content in the beginning with someone who's good and average, than to feel ecstatic. Because if you feel ecstatic, there's something dangerous with that picture. Rose. The music at the wedding was so loud, we could barely hear what the woman was telling me. Over there, she yelled, pointing at her niece, in the beige outfit, please go talk to Rose. She had perfectly coordinated person shoes, self-assured with a look of superiority on her face. The woman pleaded, please come talk to my niece Rose. We're all beside ourselves with worry. My friend told me when we flew in for the chasana that I should ask you for help. The, the friend was talking to a dating coach. They introduced the dating coach to Rose. She sang her praises and made a hasty retreat. You may mention that you're looking. I'm not a shotgun, but maybe I can help. Rose, what are you looking for in a guy? She began to rattle off her well-rehearsed list. First of all, no nerds. And I need a guy who's with it. Cool. Mr. Personality, Gishmak, you know, a macher. She continued to enumerate everything she wanted in a husband. A serious learner, but also someone who was worldly. And a savvy person about how to run financial affairs. Someone who was a leader in the community. But also took time for the kids. On and on she went ad nauseum with her list. I once told the story of a guy that hired me to be his dating coach. Six type pages he had of what he wanted in a woman. He was trying to sort of create the bionic woman that doesn't exist. I said, are you kidding? Six type, six type pages? No wonder he's 53 and still single living on the Upper East Side. On and on Rose went ad nauseum. She did throw in one comment about how this is her ideal picture. Of course, she can't expect to get everything. And she carried on. Of course, deep down, you know, she expected everything. She would have gone on longer, but we cut her off short and turned the tables on her. We hear what you want, Rose, but let me ask you, what are you offering a husband in return? What do you got to offer to the marriage? Her eyes looked at the dating coach with disdain. I can run a house, I can build a good family, I'm smart, I take good care of my body, I'm physically fit. I could see her begin to be uneasy as she started to get vulnerable. 
She felt uncomfortable, clearly, sharing such personal information with a stranger. I let the moment pass, and then I stared in on her. What do you need to make you happy, Rose? I just told you, she said coldly. No, you told me what you want, as if you're shopping for a human specimen in the mall. Even if you got everything on your list, it would never make you happy. Those are all your wants, superficial things. Superficial wants don't make you happy. Have you ever thought about what you need? That you need a husband that perhaps has a Rebbe, that's warm, that's kind, that's considerate, that's generous, that has no issues with anger, that has emotional stability, that has a Parnassa track? Well, what's the difference, she asked the dating coach, between a want and a need? And here's the answer. Wants are superficial. Many are inculcated by society or your community or your friends. Some are there to impress our friends or because we believe they'll have an impact on raising us socially so people could stare at us. Needs, on the other hand, are what is real about the person. Tonight I had a person who came to see me, extremely wealthy, because she wants me to help her son. Right? The person she told me that people stare at me because they think I'm very... She's extremely wealthy. It's not so simple being in that category, let me tell you. She's constantly ducking people. Needs, on the other hand, are what is real about the person. What do you need that's real about the guy that you're going out with? Emotional needs. The needs of your neshama, that you need a guy to click with you spiritually. That you and him should be able to fulfill Hashem's will together. That's what's going to make you happy, Rose. For example, I continued, you say you want a geshmak husband, Mr. Personality. Let's say your geshmak husband always needs attention and tramples on your feelings because he's used to being given the attention all the time. Would that be okay with you? How about a man from the right family, so-called, who has pedigree, who makes decisions without even asking you what your opinion is? Would that make you happy? Or a cool husband who's so busy with his appearance that he neglects you? Would that make you happy? Would those things make you happy, Rose? Her expression remained stoic, but she was beginning to see how ridiculous she sounded. Let's sit for a moment. I want to share a true story with you, Rose. I began. Two women volunteer at a clothing gemach. One is very wealthy, and the other one lives in a small apartment with many children. But they both volunteer in the same gemach for clothing. Over the years, they become friends. But the poor woman often has pangs of jealousy, feelings of jealousy, because her friend drives a brand new Lexus, has an enormous, gorgeous home, and travels to Israel four times a year. One afternoon, they go to the wealthy woman's large house to pick up some clothing for the gemach and stop in for a bite to eat in the wealthy woman's house. The house is even more beautiful on the inside than she could have imagined. On the table is a furniture catalog, with post-it notes stuck in various pages. The woman flips through to help her wealthy friend find a new couch. She said to her, you know, Zivi, could you help me pick out a new couch? Zivi is the poorer woman. She points to an elegant rust-colored couch. The wealthy woman, her response chills Zivi to the bone. Oh, that's gorgeous. But my mother-in-law would never allow it. The pillows always look messy which means that every decision in this wealthy woman's life is made by her mother-in-law. She's an indentured servant to her mother-in-law. So who's happier, the poorer woman or the wealthy woman who's controlled like a puppet by her mother-in-law? She can't even decide what couch she's allowed to buy. 
I paused and I asked Rose, said the dating coach, do you know why I told you this story? That you can't always tell what's going on behind closed doors. You think the Goldsteins are happy because they're rich and the Epsteins are happy because they go to every Pesach program that's 25000 per head or more. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You're probably more happier than they are. From the outside, it looked like the wealthy woman had everything anyone would ever want. But she was actually a bird in a cage. If we sat down with that woman before she was married and offered her a choice, would you like to marry a poor man and make your own decisions about your life? Or marry a rich guy, but you have to kowtow to your mother-in-law for the rest of your life? What would you decide? Girls, what would you decide? Would you like to be controlled by a mother-in-law that would do, make every decision for you? We can tell you that if you dive in for superficial qualities, Hashem may grant them to you, but they'll come with a hefty price. Whereas if you're willing to humble yourself and not demand too much, Hashem will gift us with more than you ask. Don't ask for the whole thing. Ask for a little bit and God will give you much more. The point is, you have to be very careful about what you ask for. Narrow down your list. Get rid of the wants and only keep your needs. Wants are superficial. Wants is dark, handsome, that means uh, wealthy, has an apartment in Israel. That's not something you need in order to make you happy. Needs are more important. Be suspicious of items on your list that may come across as hospitic to Hashem. Wanting a cool husband, excuse me, does not sound that that will fulfill your mission on earth. After all, Hashem puts us all here to fulfill a mission. Will I fulfill it with a cool husband? Or will I fulfill it with a husband that has your Shemaim? Or studies Torah? Because if you don't fulfill your purpose in this world, you're going to have to make a 360 and come back. We're not saying you have to marry a man you consider a nerd. But I'm just saying that you are far better off looking for a husband who's kind, compassionate, loyal, or a hundred other qualities that have far more to do with your happiness than having a cool husband. We turn towards Rose. We gave her a, a bracha that she should have the fortitude to overcome her sense of entitlement. That Hashem should help her gain clarity about what her true needs are. And that she should not become distracted with superficial desires. We never heard from Rose again. But I can't help but feel that in one small way, we made a difference. It's so common for people to cling tenaciously to a value that's not even theirs. It's put there by a friend or a cousin or TV or a movie. Many times people cling to perceived entitlements without a willingness to compromise. I gotta have this. I gotta have that. They never stop to consider the repercussions of their choices, or think about where these values came from in the first place. Take the time to think about what would make you happy. What are the needs that you need to make you happy? Take the time to get clarity in your dating, as well to avoid many difficulties in the marriage itself. As you know yourself and your needs better, the better able you're able to serve your spouse's needs. That is the heart of a true Jewish home. Next story, Natan. Natan was the most eligible bachelor in town. Everyone knew it. He was handsome, well-liked, and his father was very wealthy. 
Nathan made sure everyone knew that one day this is all going to be mine. He dressed well, drove a fancy car, and was known to be generous when he took the girls out on dates. And on the other side of town, Nechama was stunning. She came from a poor home, but had exquisite taste. She dreamed about marrying a handsome man, setting up a beautiful home, and raising gorgeous children who would lack for nothing. When she got her turn with Natan, there was little question that they were the perfect match. Natan felt a sense of pride being with such a beautiful girl, just like the, the feeling he felt after he bought his first sports car, like an acquisition. They both wanted the best things in life and paid little attention to each other's midos or lack of. After all, most of life's little difficulties can be squared away with a little cash. When Nechama and Natan became engaged, everyone thought, but of course, they were the glamour shidduch of the city. Heads turned when they walked into the room, and people envied the life of wealth that Nechama would now be living. Natan's father bought them a luxurious home that Nechama tastefully decorated. All her dreams are now coming true, or so she thought. The couple had two girls in rapid succession, and plenty of household help to make life as easy as possible. Nechama kept a strict exercise regimen in her effort to stay fit and beautiful. She indulged herself with all the things that she could never buy when she was growing up because she was poor. Now she could afford to buy whatever she wanted. She had every intention to do chesed later on in life. First, let me enjoy life. Natan, however, had many stresses at work. His father, while generous, was extremely demanding. And Natan felt like a servant. His father would have him jump every time he needed something. And his father had very poor judgment and could not differentiate between what was urgent and what was not urgent. Natan consoled himself at the refrigerator, and his handsome face was quickly covered with deep worry lines that made him look much older than his years. Three years into the marriage, the glamorous couple was almost unrecognizable. Natan was now 80 pounds overweight, and the swagger they had once carried resembled more a defeated slump of an old man. Nechama wore a perennial look of anger on her face, because Natan was never around. He had to work all those long hours to satisfy his father. Natan was always indulging his daughters. So desperate was he for their approval that all he did was buy them toys. And Nechama was their only source of discipline. Without any team effort, Nechama was worn and haggard and seethed at her husband's lack of backbone. She took out her anger with exorbitant credit card expenditures. They always say that if a woman spends a lot of money on her credit cards, it means she's not getting attention from her husband. But what happened next is almost too heartbreaking to recount. Natan's father passed away, and it was discovered that as many millions of dollars he had, he owed even more millions of dollars in debts, which means that they were a very poor family. The entire family was left penniless, except for an insurance policy that at least provided for Natan's mother. That's all they owned, an insurance policy. Yet the world thought that they were millionaires. It was all a fake out. For 11 years until their divorce, Nechama followed Natan from city to city, job to job, he was never content to make a modest but good living. He always had to go for the big score, the big kill, and constantly he fell on his face. After all, Nechama didn't, didn't try to d- discourage his thinking. She always wanted the same lifestyle as well. So Natan would get wrapped up in one far-out sales scheme after another, and each one was a failure. After Natan's second bankruptcy, Nechama couldn't take it anymore. She left him and took the girls with her. The demise of their marriage was not surprising. After all, the reasons they got married in the first place were never there to start. But what was especially tragic is that we sat down with Nechama before she met Natan and we asked her, Nechama, what would you rather have? 
a financially modest husband who dedicates his whole life to making you happy, or an extremely rich husband who's marrying you only for your looks? What would she have decided? We know what she would have decided. I'll take a financially modest husband. Or if we sat down with nothing and asked them, would you rather have a gorgeous wife or someone who's more selfless? There'd be very little doubt what nothing would have decided on. Here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. The problem is that people don't stop to ask themselves these questions before looking for a spouse. So they barrel ahead without thinking, without creating a top 10 list. And as a result, they make horrible mistakes that end up in broken engagements and quick divorces. It could have been avoided had they dated cerebrally. They just barrel ahead trying to fulfill their expectations without questioning, where did these expectations come from in the first place? Where am I getting my hashkafa from? Or whether fulfilling these expectations will make you happy in the long run anyway, which they will not. Here's a beautiful story. I was born to an unstable, emotionally ill parents. They weren't capable of making a living or of running a household. We children were shockingly neglected in every way. I don't know how I survived my childhood with no guiding hand, no warmth, and no love. No one cared whether or not we went to school. So my siblings chose the option of not going to school. The parents were dysfunctional. I was happy to go to school because from an early age I could see that any place was better than my house. I made my own sandwich every morning. The mother didn't even make her lunch. That is, if there was even bread in the house. Because my parents usually slept late, every day. I bought my own clothes or borrowed clothes from friends. I don't know what my situation didn't hurt my social status, but thank God I had friends. I was something of a hustler, to tell the truth. I had to be, but in a nice way. I wangled invitations to meals at my friends' homes. And I managed to pay for school trips by doing a lot of babysitting and sometimes menial jobs. And so I got through my childhood and my adolescence. When I was 17, my father passed away. And from there, things slid downhill very quickly in my life. The family fell apart completely. My mother was hospitalized. And at the age of 18, I was totally on my own. I went to work as a maid, a cleaner. This is a girl in Israel. Or whatever work I could get, a good religious girl without any training could ever get. I made sure to keep up with my studies, even though I couldn't do much with them. Because when you have to work just to put bread in your mouth, it isn't always possible to apply to your, yourself to your school. But I continued going to school anyway, to be on the safe side, and just to stay connected to my friends and a good religious network. When I was 21, a friend set me up with a young man who seemed to be like perfection on earth. This is going to sound crazy, but I think what I really enchanted enchant- me was the fact that he had a family, and I never had a family. Yes, what most people take as a given was a big thing for me. I didn't grow up with a family. That and the mere fact that anyone would be willing to marry me was good enough for me. So she set a very low bar. And so we got married. And after the wedding, it became clear that although he had a family, they didn't have anything to do with him. It turned out that he was the black sheep of his family. While all his siblings were wonderful, exemplary young people, my husband was the one who stayed in bed late and didn't do much of anything with his life. All my life I dreamed of building a home that would be the opposite of the one my parents ruined. But here I was with a husband who was a carbon copy of my father. I will say he had a good heart, but that's all he had. He was passive, apathetic, unmotivated, no ambition. 
And if I thought I could take comfort in the family that he came from, it seemed that they were glad they got rid of him and they married him off to me, a complete loser. They got rid of him. Seriously, once they had him out of the house, they did their best to avoid seeing him. So my dream was doubly shattered. A horrible adolescence, a horrible childhood, and now a horrible marriage. And then I had a baby, a son. We were very happy, and we began raising him. Or I should say, I raised him, because my husband was never around to help me. When the baby was about six months old, I noticed something strange. I took him to a doctor, and very soon tests confirmed the doctor's suspicion. My baby was deaf. Not hard of hearing, not partially deaf. He was stone deaf. How much can a young woman take in her life? But apparently someone who's been hit physically and emotionally all her life, she learns how to take it. And besides, my baby was so adorable that I bonded with him heart and soul. My husband was not interested in the baby at all. And I'm not sure the deafness had anything to do with it. I think it's because he had no interest in anything in life. Whatever the reason, I once again found myself coping on my own. I had no, no one to help me deal with, with the hardships of life. I had to make ends meet. I had the challenge of raising a child and a disabled child at that. But I found ways. I just found them. A year and a half later, I had another child, this time a girl. Now I was told that I better have her hearing checked right away. So I took her for a hearing test. And what do you think they found? She was deaf. Stone deaf. The doctor said, it's got to be genetic. And that gave my husband enough of an excuse to abandon us. Have you counted all the troubles? I've already stopped counting. So her husband abandons her. A difficult childhood, a poorly chosen spouse, two children afflicted with deafness, and now abandonment and divorce, just when things were at their hardest. I think God Himself infused me with superhuman powers. I gave my children all I had and all I did not have. How I mustered up all the love I gave them, I don't know, because certainly no one had given it to me. I tried to get their father at least to take them out once in a while, so to take his son to shul, to learn Mishnahis with him. But it was like talking to a wall. The city welfare department gave me a lot of help, mainly due to my deaf children's special needs. All sorts of educational support was available, but I preferred to forego most of these options because the therapists were non-Jews, and I didn't want any non-Jewish influences in my children's lives. But of course, when it came to financial help with medical expenses, I accepted the aid from the city. One day, my son Donnie fell and suffered some minor injuries. I went with my children to the neighborhood clinic to have him bandaged up. I sat down in the waiting room. And then I went downstairs to take care of the payment. That took a while. And the whole time I was anxious about what was happening with my kids. Finally, my turn came. And as soon as I, the business was done, I hurried back upstairs. From just outside the room where my kids were sitting, waiting, I saw a non-Jewish couple in their 40s sitting across from them. They looked at my kids and the kids looked back at them. They stared, they started asking the kids questions. And it, when the kids, which the kids tried to answer with their guttural sounds. I'm, I'm very familiar with this. I had the honor and pleasure to speak a month ago in the only yeshiva in the world for the deaf. Nefesh David, which is a yeshiva that caters only to deaf students in Toronto. So I understand. So the lady writes, I decided not to go in, but I wanted to watch what was happening between the couple and my kids. The man asked them where they went to school, and my son did not know what he was saying. He tried to tell the man in sign language that he could not hear, but the man couldn't understand the sign language. His wife said to him, Dear, they don't hear you. These kids are obviously deaf. 
the couple started discussing how to communicate with the kids. The women tried saying, how old are you? While waving her hand to indicate an imaginary ladder. The kids just laughed. Of course they couldn't hear the question, and the meaning of the hand movement wasn't clear at all. I let them sweat it out for about 10 minutes, and then I came in and introduced myself as the mother of these kids. They asked me how I manage with deaf children, and I gave them some kind of polite answer. They continued asking me about the kids, and then the woman said, it's not right that people don't know sign language. It leaves deaf people all the more isolated. Her husband said, I used to think I was smart, but next to these kids I feel dumb. I can't understand what they're trying to tell me. They were very interested to know about my approach to raising my kids. And somehow I found myself telling them my whole story. I told them my whole history. They were very moved by my story. And before we parted, the woman gave me her phone number and asked me for mine. A week later, the woman called me. She told me that she and her husband had both started taking sign language classes to be able to, be able to communicate with deaf. And she asked if they, she, they could come to visit. I invited them. They bought toys for the children, and they already knew how to ask how old they were and what games they liked to play in sign language. By this time, I realized that they were a well-off couple with no children of their own. The husband owned several gas stations and made a nice living. They ended up sort of adopting me and my kids, and for the first time in my life, I had some financial support, even enough to keep me afloat without always worrying about how I would feed the kids next week. In a few months' time, Jack and Rachel knew sign language well, and they started really communicating with my kids, which energized my kids very much. I can hardly begin to describe how nice Jack and Rachel were to all of us. One day, Rachel called and asked if she and her husband could take the kids out for a few hours. I asked where they were going to take them, and she mentioned the holiday that they celebrated. She said they'd like to take the kids out and buy them presents for the holiday. I didn't know, I didn't know what to say. I started stammering. Fortunately, they were intelligent and sensitive people, and they realized that there was a problem with the suggestion because they were not Jewish. And she didn't want her children to be taken out to celebrate a non-Jewish holiday and receive gifts for a non-Jewish holiday. They said they would come and visit the next day, and we would talk about it then. I couldn't sleep that night because I didn't know how to tell them. But finally, I got my thoughts in order, and when they came, I told them nicely that they were not Jewish And that I was ultra-Orthodox. And that my children's upbringing did not permit them to celebrate non-Jewish holidays. They were stunned, but they didn't take offense, or at least they didn't show it. They sat with me until midnight while I told them what it means to be Jewish, how many commandments we had to keep, how complicated it is, and about the persecution the Jewish people have faced for thousands of years. And that millions of Jews have given up their lives rather than desecrate Shabbos or desecrate kashras, or even a beard and payas. And they were so impressed. And Rachel said they ought to learn about Judaism, so they would know what to say, and especially what not to say to my kids. I see that your son has no one to study the Torah with. And Talmud with, she said, if we would start studying it, maybe my husband could study with him. Imagine. Look how righteous these people were. Amazing. I didn't know what to say. I knew inside that it wouldn't work. Learning Torah was not the same as learning sign language. And I always been so strict about non-Jewish influences in my house. Not even allowing Gentiles to teach my children math or English. So how could I contemplate letting Jack, a kind and generous person, teach my Danny Torah? I'm going to let a Gentile teach Danny Torah? Yet I could not just blur this out to my good friends. But I knew a way out of this sticky situation. The Rav of the local community could help me. 
I told Rachel and Jack, I'll put them in touch with him to discuss the possibility of learning some Torah with the rabbi. This rabbi was known to be a wise man of great character. I called him the next day. I explained the situation. He understood that I was very grateful to, to them for their help and kindness. But at the same time, I was concerned about exposing my children to the non-Jewish world. The rabbi began to meet with Jack and Rachel and explain to them about Judaism. Suddenly a world they'd never known was revealed to them. And they surely wanted to know more. They took it seriously. And they started buying books and other educational material about Judaism. After some months of intensive study and inquiry, they came to me and told me, they decided to convert and become Jews. Amazing. Again, I didn't know what to say. I started to cry. They asked me what the tears were about. I'm crying because of two reasons. I'm answered. One, because I'm so touched that you want to become Jews. And two, because I know you have a hard path ahead of you. It's not easy to convert to Judaism. It takes a long time. There are going to be a lot of obstacles. Yes, we know, they told us. We've heard about the Jewish people being an exclusive club. And that it's not easy to gain membership. And we know that we could go anytime to a reform, a conservative rabbi, and go through a quick and easy conversion process. But that would be like eating a steak wrapped in plastic. It just wouldn't be the real thing. If we're going to convert to Judaism, only Orthodox will be acceptable. So Rachel and Jack forged ahead courageously, although the rabbis did their part to try to discourage them from becoming Jewish. They weren't even insulted when they were sent away. They knew they had to show their sincerity. And finally, a year and a half after they requested conversion, they went through a halacha giyur and became part of the Jewish people. Uh, Jack became Yaakov, and Rachel became Sarah. Yaakov started learning Torah from the beginning, Tanakh, Mishnah, and even Talmud. And after a while, he actually did start learning with Maidani, and kept track of his progress. Sarah became like a grandmother to my daughter Rivka. They came and filled a huge gap in our lives. Eventually, I remarried. My new husband is a wonderful man, and we have three children together, all of them healthy and free of hearing problems. We have raised all five children with love and warmth. And Yaakov and Sarah have remained in our lives as surrogate parents to me and grandparents to my children. Danny married a girl with no hearing issues. And Rivka married a boy who's hard of hearing. So both children with hearing issues got married, which is a big thing. Two of the other children are married as well, and just one daughter is still at home with us. Looking back on my life, I see it as one long miracle. I grew up in a house that wasn't a house, without support, without love, without parenting, without guidance, without values. I've intentionally skipped over many of the details of that chapter in my life because it's a very sad, sad story. And I don't want the story I'm telling to be a sad one. Finding that out that both my children were deaf, the two worst days of my life that nearly plunged me into complete despair turned out to be a great bracha, a great blessing because it was these two deaf children that caught the interest of Yaakov and Sarah and brought them into our lives. Yaakov and Sarah were sent by Hashem to pull us out of the mire and muck place us on an even footing, and later even enabled me to remarry and complete my family. This beautiful pair of souls have no children of their own, but we make it clear to them that our children can be considered as their children, since they have a part in everything our children have become. For without them, we wouldn't be where we are today. They have the status of grandparents in our family, and we allow the children to spend time in their house without worries. Not only are Yaakov and Sarah religious Jews like us, I would say they surpass us in Yerushalayim. Hashem has no lack of ways of guiding people to the place they truly are meant to be. And that is my story, really the story of a unique and amazing couple. We call this a story as a sign of faith.
just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.